All right, we are back. Our last segment was rather freeform, as you no doubt noticed. And while we have the option of saying a few more things about that prior topic, I think what we're going to do instead is something we had not really planned to do. But that is for the following segment to do our usual top of the show. Far as we know, this involves no FCC violation. We have so much material, I think that's exactly what we're going to do, and maybe talk a little bit more about the prior topic with, on next week's program, possibly with our good pal, Dr. Andy Jones. All right, for our quote of the day for this segment, we're going to go again with Oscar Levant, who once said, I think a lot of Leonard Bernstein, but not as much as he does. Lenny has no humor about his egomania. I do. For our quip... We'll go with Albert Einstein, who once said, I prefer silent vice to ostentatious virtue. For our anecdote, let's again use Oscar Levant, shall we? Oscar noted in the memoirs of an amnesiac that I knew many of the underworld figures in my youth. There was one notorious hood who used to be around the nightclubs. He was a gangland assassin. His particular trademark was three bullet holes in the forehead. When the cops picked him up and took him to the morgue after one gang murder, the, the body on the slab had three neat perforations on its brow. The hood leaned over, studied them with a professional air, then turned to the police. A forgery, he announced. I think we'll use another anecdote as our substitute for a joke. Apparently, down in Galveston, Texas, Leslie Ray, quote, Popeye, unquote, Charping, passed away recently, and it was noted that he evidently will not be missed by his family. After Trapping died of cancer recently at age 75, <laughs> survivors wrote an online obituary that he lived, quote, 29 years longer than he expected and much longer than he deserved, unquote. According to his families, his hobbies were, quote, being abusive to his family, expediting trips to heaven for the beloved family pets, and fishing. His life, they said, served no other obvious purpose. There's a lesson in that. Be nice to your family. They write your obituary. Let's do a couple stats for today's program. The first would be that, um, I did not know this, but apparently back in 2006, there was an attempt to build a 700-mile-long fence at the U.S.-Mexico border. This is still bogged down by over 120 lawsuits by landowners that are still working their way through the courts. And yes, if you want to build a wall on the Mexican border, the federal government would need to buy or condemn thousands of pieces of private property. So, uh... This wall that Trump wants to build is not looking so good. And according to a recent poll by public policy polling, 40% of the U.S. population already wants to see Donald Trump impeached. And thirdly, we need to correct a stat, or perhaps correct a stat, which has been reported on this program and pretty much everywhere. It's been noted that the figure that our bodies contain perhaps 10 times more bacterial cells than human cells may not be correct. Apparently, the matter was looked into by scientists Ron Sender, Shai Fuchs, and Ron Milo, and they have written that the myth of a 10-to-1 bacterial-to-human-cell ratio is based on a single back-of-the-envelope estimate by the biochemist Thomas Lucky in a 1972 paper. And no, we don't know what the real number is supposed to be. But apparently, this has taken on a life of its own, like the stat that we only use 10% of our brains which was just <laughs> pulled out of thin air by somebody a long time ago. The fact of the matter is, your brain is pretty busy, and it's mostly active on one level or another. We cannot support the idea that 90% of our brains are going unused. Well, maybe in some subsets of the population. 
There does seem to be some anecdotal evidence for that. All right, let's jump right into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week recently for rest and relaxation. After President Trump, who repeatedly lambasted Barack Obama for playing golf while president, played six rounds of golf in Florida during his first month of office. Evidently, his staff taped up a window with black plastic to prevent reporters from seeing Trump out on the course. Keep moving, nothing to see. It was, on the other hand, a bad week, I think, for all of us recently with the news that Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt is, in fact, the new head of the Environmental Protection Agency. Pruitt is a climate change skeptic who sued the EPA at least 14 times, accusing the Obama administration of unwarranted regulation and systematic overreach. Of course, as you know, the president is proposing, given the Pentagon an additional $54 billion, at least some of which will become from cutting the EPA budget. Of course, that's only going to be a tiny fraction since the EPA budget is only a small fraction of $54 billion. And it was an ugly week recently for authors with the news that publishers are hiring sensitivity readers to screen books for content about race, religion, gender, and sexual orientation that someone might find offensive. Dovetailing with that, we have a piece from the Kauai Midweek. Yes, I was in Hawaii recently. Frankly, can't resist this column of weird news by Chuck Shepard. Mr. Shepard noted in his column that the University of Kentucky professor Buck Ryan disclosed in December that he'd been punished recently with a loss of travel funds and a, quote, prestigious award by his dean for singing the Beach Boys classic California Girls for a lesson comparing Chinese and American cultures. Because of the song's, quote, language of sexual nature, unquote, the school's, quote, coordinator, unquote, on sexual harassment issues made the ruling apparently absent student complaints for Ryan's lyric change of the song, wherein evidently Ryan changed the lyrics that said, well, East Coast girls are hip to, well, Shanghai girls are hip. Well, we can't allow that sort of thing to go forward, can we? At a university? Someone might get offended. <laughs> Apparently, the cultural coordinator got offended. Frankly, we recommend that he get a life. And one item that has a little bit of good and bad and ugly in it all combined might be the fact that George W. Bush has come forward recently to challenge Donald Trump's contention that the journalists and the press are the enemy of the people. Bush, to the contrary, said that the press was an important aspect of American life that needed to rein in people like him because power can be a bit addicting. We were pretty unstinting in our criticism of George W. Bush when he was president, but we'll give him an attaboy on that one. And here's one, we, again, we also can't decide whether it's good, bad, or ugly, but apparently a lot of Americans are playing amateur psychiatrist after viewing the antics of the guy in the Oval Office. Senator Al Franken recently claimed that several Republican colleagues have admitted they're concerned about the president's mental well-being. 
Other Democratic lawmakers have raised the prospect of invoking the 25th Amendment under which a president can be declared incapacitated and removed from office. But people are saying this is bad, including the psychiatrist who defined narcissistic personality disorder. He has reacted to the speculation by saying the president couldn't be diagnosed as mentally ill because, quote, he causes severe distress rather than experiencing it, unquote, which frankly to us is a pretty cuckoo explanation. Sounding a counter note to this was Jacob Bacharach of the New Republic who said, I don't know about crazy, but Trump is clearly not well. At that alarming recent press conference, the president seemed unhinged, making faces, doing silly voices, baldly stating falsehoods about his electoral college margin, and referring offhandedly to blowing up a Russian ship and to a nuclear holocaust. He added, it's all quite bonkers. We do invite the listener to look up the DSM criteria for narcissistic personality disorder, of which there are nine, the diagnosis is made if you have five, and just run down the list compared to Trump and see what you think. We think it's okay for all of us to play amateur psychiatrist. How about this from the Only in America file? I don't know how many times we've covered stories like this. Let's do one more. Apparently a school board in Charleston, South Carolina, is removing the optional pregnancy and STD prevention lessons from its curriculum for 7th and 8th graders over fears the information will promote promiscuity. Board member Tom Ducker said, I don't think most middle schoolers are even thinking about sex. Well, I got news for you, Mr. Ducker. He noted, instead, sex education classes will teach abstinence, which has been a proven failure everywhere it's been employed. But, oh well, I don't have to pay for the unwanted pregnancies in South Carolina. And apologies to any listeners in South Carolina who do. Sorry about that, folks. We would like to do a good news item every show, and I just kind of blew right past that particular segment, but... Here's a story we should talk about briefly, which is that salmon are returning in droves all over Northern California in the wake of our wet, wet year. In our recent years of drought, the salmon population has suffered terribly, and we are glad to see this. That's really about all I got to say. We would like to note that the good folks at National Geographic have produced a special on water in California. We'll be talking to some of those good people next week. All right, let's do a follow-up on robo-bats, which we mentioned on last week's program. Researchers are trying to make uh, bat robots that you know, fly like the real thing, which could be pretty interesting. A lot of these little micro-drones they have that fly like insects uh, mimic insect wings, which are not flying by Bernoulli's principle <laughs> we were taught, uh, taught in school. They use little vortices off the wings to create lift. It's quite complicated and, and quite interesting, and I wish I knew more about it. We noted on last week's program that bats have now set the record for level flight, which we found rather astonishing. I'm not sure how they're going to do with this robo-bat, but uh, it was noted in the article, which I finally have my hands on, that bat wings have more than 40 joints to adjust their shape during flight, and recreating that would make a robot too bulky. So the current bat bot they're working on has nine joint wing structures made of lightweight carbon fiber covered with stretchy silicone membranes. Pretty interesting stuff. And let's segue at this point into a few science articles. I was quite taken aback by this piece in New Scientist last December that claimed that magnetic space dust has been found in urban debris for the first time. According to the magazine, cosmic dust has turned up in rooftops in three major cities. 
These tiny particles date back 4.6 billion years to the birth of the solar system. Now, as you may or may not know, we've known this since the 1940s, bits of cosmic dust, micrometeorites, if you will, fall continuously through our atmosphere. It's estimated that the Earth gains tons of this stuff every day. It was thought that this material could not be detected. But when they went out and took a look, well, guess what? Researchers sifted through 300 kilograms of muck trapped in roof gardens in Paris, Oslo, and Berlin, and then used magnets to tease it apart. They found a total of 500 cosmic grain dusts which contain magnetic minerals. The size and composition of the cosmic dust particles suggest they must have melted, well, I guess so, as they entered the atmosphere at around 12 kilometers per second. This made them the fastest moving dust particles ever found on Earth. Now, it's a known fact that if you look up at the night sky and you see a pretty good meteor, it's only the size of the head of a pin. I guess that this stuff being smaller breaks faster and manages to survive its plunge through the atmosphere. I'm not an expert on this, but I am intrigued. After this was published in the magazine, a reader wrote back, a John Rowland from Derby, UK, to state the following. You report the first time, unquote, unquote, that cosmic dust has been found in urban dirt. Iron micrometeorites are in fact very common and easy to find wherever rain is frequent and guttering to catch it is fitted to buildings. Iron space dust that is fine enough to escape incineration as shooting stars when entered Earth's atmosphere drifts down continuously. To collect these small iron spheres, scrape several handfuls of muck from a convenient roof gutter, preferably a plastic one, and add it to a bucket of water and stir. Fish for meteorites with a strong magnet wrapped in a plastic bag. Remove the magnet carefully to rinse the bag into a glass dish and look for fine, dark gray dust. Dragging the magnet underneath will concentrate the dust. A good magnifier will show tiny spheres, some of them up to 0.2 millimeters in diameter. And yes, dear listener, we hope you do try this at home and drop us a line at what you find at info at radioparallax.com. I did clean my gutters before our recent rains, but I'm going to give this one a go. Let's talk about this gluten mania, or gluten-free mania, currently sweeping the world. Writing in New Scientist last September, Claire Wilson had the following to say. A cafe owner in Dublin, Ireland, sparked internet outrage last week when they said anyone wanting gluten-free food would have to show a doctor's note. They later admitted it was a joke, but the commotion reflects the rise of what we call gluten intolerance intolerance. Many people see going gluten-free as just another fad, and researchers are still trying to figure out what science might really underlie it. Now, I had a chance to sit down with a friend of mine recently who is a pathologist, and she expressed outrage over the fact that what's becoming almost a routine part of an endoscopic procedure is to take a snippet of the intestines and send it off to the path lab to see if the patient contains celiac disease, which is, of course, a real condition arising when the immune system reacts to gluten in wheat and it damages the gut lining as a result. When I was in medical school, I learned about gluten enteropathy, celiac sprue, it was called. But I've been a little bit astonished to see how the notion that we all, that so many people have this has really taken root. For the record, my pathologist friend said that despite all of these specimens being sent to her 
She thinks that perhaps one in 200 of them actually contains evidence of celiac disease. Uh, the magazine noted that the findings, that there's a very low rate in reality of, of people with gluten enteropathy, doesn't mean that all people reacting to this are irrational. In fact, most who avoid gluten do not claim to have celiac disease, but a less severe condition, sometimes called gluten intolerance. They claim that after eating wheat, they get stomach pains and bloating. The jury's still out on this, but we're going to continue to investigate. I would note that Mr. Merlin did manage to put his hands on some chunks of gluten, or at least advertised as such, which uh, yours truly devoured and find they make a very good meat substitute, although the gluten is rather tasteless. I'm sort of suspecting that over the years when you've eaten products that contain textured vegetable protein, that it may have contained gluten because the stuff has the texture of string cheese and, you know, again, makes a very good meat substitute. Speaking of meat substitutes, some researchers have concluded that the vaunted paleo diet was actually a vegetarian feast with a side of meat. Colin Barras, writing in New Scientist, said that today's paleo diet cookbooks might be missing a few pages. It seems that our early ancestors were more adventurous with their plant foods than we might expect. They roasted acorns, sedges, and water lily seeds, along with fish and meats. It's noted that archaeologists tend to emphasize the role of meat in ancient human diets, largely because the butchered bones of animals are so likely to be preserved at dig sites. Animal plants, on the other hand, may have been overlooked simply because their remains don't survive so well. Also, many species that most of us no longer recognize as food were food sources as recently as, as, recently as the last few centuries somewhere in the world. Some paleo foods, of course, are familiar to us today, like water chestnuts and olives. Here's some other scientific matter the jury's still out on. Flossing. We mentioned this program a while back that um, evidently the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the U.S. Department of Agriculture had recommended flossing as recently as 2015 as part of its Dietary Guidelines for Americans. This is a report issued every five years, which reportedly must be based on scientific evidence. Supposedly, Associated Press journalists probed for the evidence for flossing, and the government turned up empty-handed and thus dropped flossing from its guidelines. A lot of people are asking, well, does science support flossing? Frankly, we don't see how it can fail to do so. When you actually take some dental floss, or even better yet, dental taste, to the or even better yet, dental tape to the space between your teeth, you usually find even after brushing that, you know, a little bit of debris can be dislodged. That can't be good to have wedged up out there in the space between your gum and teeth. So our suspicion is that flossing is in fact very good for you, but since nobody's studied it formally, <laughs> they're just dropping it from the guidelines. I, I don't know. Governments do dumb things. The Australian government apparently has done something very dumb. It has now become the latest country to ban over-the-counter sales of drugs containing the opioid painkiller codeine. Of course, in this country, we got rid of over-the-counter codeine preparations a long time ago. Until recently, codeine, which is used to treat both pain and suppress coughing, could currently be purchased in both Australia and the UK without a prescription. Low doses are found in some painkillers, and if you travel in a lot of countries, you'll be shocked to note that, yes, you can buy low-dose codeine preparations, and um, 
Well, codeine is a useful drug, not just for pain and for cough, but also for GI upsets. We were told in medical school, if you had to go to a desert island and you could only take one medication, codeine would be an excellent choice. It was reported in New Scientist that since banning such sales, countries that allowed over-the-counter codeine have seen a fall in codeine-related deaths. They quoted Michael Vag, a reported pain specialist in Geelong, Australia, saying, but that's not even the most compelling argument for doing this. It's also a pretty rubbish drug that doesn't actually help people as much as they think it does. I don't know. we got some doubts about what they're doing down in Australia. Australia banned Sudafed. Banned it. You can't get it in the country as of a couple of years ago. Now, in America, you can still get Sudafed, but you can't get it freely off the shelves. You have to go up to the counter in the pharmacy. Sign a document that, I guess, identifies you in case you decide to make, you know, crank in your bathtub. Which, by the way, you can do with Sudafed if you're determined. That's not how it's being made in, in meth labs across the country, but it can be done. And uh, since some people abuse it, the Australians said, yeah, we'll just get rid of it completely. Great, unless you have a chronic sinus condition or you like a medicine that's actually effective. Most of these over-the-counter preparations, Sudafed has been replaced with phenylephrine, despite the fact that study after study after study shows it doesn't work. Well, it may be true it doesn't work, but nobody's making crank in their bathtub with it. Well, we would note that there's no evidence that dental floss works either, but so far the Australian authorities have not banned it. Now, let's talk a little bit about technology gone bad, shall we? Apparently, a lot of folks have invested in wearable tech that will give you data related to, like, your heart rate. We've expressed skepticism that much good is going to come of that. But we would note, again, going to New Scientist, an article by Alice Klein, noted that a researcher at Stanford, Michael Snyder, experienced firsthand that, well, these things might be able to give you some clues as to whether you're getting ill. Apparently, he'd been wearing seven body monitoring sensors to test their reliability when suddenly they showed abnormal readings. Even though he felt fine, his heart was beating faster than normal, his skin temperature was up, and his blood oxygen levels went down. Snyder said that's what first alerted me that something wasn't quite right. He wondered whether he might have caught Lyme disease from a tick during a recent trip to rural Massachusetts. When a mild fever followed, Snyder asked a doctor for the antibiotic doxycycline, which can be used to treat Lyme disease. And it turned out, subsequent tests confirmed his self-diagnosis. His symptoms luckily cleared within a day because of his treatment. This does give you an example of how, you know, with some data and a lucky guess, you might benefit. But you do have to ask the question, if body sensors monitoring your heart rate, skin temperatures get elevated for a couple hours, and it does turn out that you're getting sick, since most illnesses are viral, what are you going to do about it? This technology might give you a clue that, you know, you're about to get sick, but <laughs> um, maybe you won't. Isn't this going to cause a lot of unnecessary worrying? We wonder. Although, frankly, we're not going to worry about it. Now, this so-called smart technology that alerts us to just everything going on around us uh, has now evidently extended itself to the hairbrush. Yes, the French cosmetic giant L'Oreal and electronics company Witherings have unveiled the world's first smart hairbrush. Described as an ingenious gadget that promises to teach users the right way to care for their locks. The Carastase hair coach analyzes hair care habits. For example, it uses sensors to determine if you're brushing too hard. 
It dishes out advice being an accompanied mobile app on everything from handling frizziness to preventing split ends. Welcome to the future. Writing about this technological wonder in gizmodo.com, Andrew Lazuski said there's a surprising amount of technology built right into the brush. A microphone listens to the sound of your hair being brushed for patterns in your technique, while an accelerometer and gyroscope count your brush strokes. This data is sent to an app which analyzes other factors like temperature, humidity, and wind conditions, and wind conditions to assign an overall hair quality score. Commenting further on this, Tasha Robinson in TheVerge.com said, The really annoying thing about these corporations wanting us to pay $200 for a product that will order us to buy more of their products. The hairbrush, which we're talking about, um, will helpfully make suggestions about which other L'Oreal products will help improve your beauty regimen. Said Tasha Robinson, The idea of paying extra for a daily marketing experience is just maddening. And finally, if a smart hairbrush wasn't enough, how about a smart cruise ship? The Carnival Corporation is sent to launch exactly that, a smart cruise ship that caters to its passengers' every whim. Come November of this year, travelers boarding the Regal Princess will find that crew members know their names, needs, and interests without asking. Drinks can be ordered anywhere on the ship, and the long lines are a thing of the past. The key to this is a quarter-sized medallion that all guests will carry. They'll use it to unlock cabin doors, book shore excursions, and alert crew where to find them. And yes, the more cruisers do, the more the medallion knows what they like, and the more customized their experience becomes. It was noted that some passengers may find certain features invasive, however, such as a photo wall that shows other cruisers who have passed within five feet of you. I don't know, if you don't find that scary, maybe you can't be scared. We've got so much more to talk about, but we're out of time, so let's bring it to a close. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. On next week's program, we're going to talk more about California's unsavory history of water grabs. We'll see you then.